Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, did you, did you catch anything today? Hey, did you catch anything? They called out from the shore on this little, on the dock, these seasoned fishermen, and swelling with pride, I got ready to show them what I had indeed caught. Now, you need to know something. Um, I am a, not much of a fisherman. Uh, I never really went fishing as a child, but we have some friends, uh, the Wilcoxes. They live just outside of Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. And so I was maybe eighth, ninth grade. We went and spent some of the summer there. And we went out in the bay on Mike Wilcox's boat, and Mike knew how to fish. And before we knew it, we were catching all kinds of stuff. We caught uh, stingrays by the stinger. I don't think you're supposed to do that, but we did. Um, all kinds of little fish. And then what I thought was just the greatest thing in the world, we caught some sharks. Black tip sharks. They were maybe the length of my arm. And I have pretty long arms. Got two of them, threw them in the cooler. We're like, man, we are set. We're going to grill these tonight on a charcoal fire, kind of like Jesus. Take the boat back, and we're, we're getting docked, and these guys call out, hey, did you catch anything? And, and they're like, go ahead and show them. So I go over, open the cooler, and pick up these two sharks by the tail to show these men. I can't describe what it's like to feel sharks move in your hand, but two went right from my face. Somehow I got them back in the cooler, we slammed it, um, and they were tasty that night. But I will never forget those sharks trying to go for my face. And that's it. You now know my one great fishing tale. <laughs> the biggest catch of my entire life right there. Um, and I bring that up because today we're actually going to see the biggest catch of these seasoned fishermen's entire life. It's a fascinating passage, John 21. Similarly, they're coming in. There's this man on the, on the shore. This is right by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And he asked these seasoned fishermen what they had caught. And then the scene transpires. Um, and this is actually the, the third and really final appearance of Jesus in the Gospel of John after his resurrection. Um, and, and it's a little bit interesting. After Jesus is raised from the dead, uh, in many cases, we see him kind of tying up some loose ends. And so last week, for instance, we looked at Thomas. Thomas hadn't been around at the first appearance of the risen Lord with his disciples, so that's a little bit of a loose end, doubting Thomas. Um, but there's one other loose end that's really dangling in the Gospel of John, and it's Peter. Because Peter had denied the Lord three times, just like Jesus said he would. Interesting. Jesus stooped down to meet Thomas's doubts, what will he do with Peter's denials? I mean, doubts, they can be overcome by evidence and faith. But denial, betrayal, that's something different entirely. And so we're going to see John will wrap up this loose end with a really interesting story about fish and fire. And I'm going to argue ultimately this is about fruit and bearing fruit and fruitfulness of the gospel. So let's look at John 21 together. Um, again, they're on uh, the Sea of Tiberias, which is usually called the Sea of Galilee in the Gospels. And the disciples have gone fishing. Um, and, and I'll just say, some people have given uh, the disciples a hard time for this. Because before Jesus meets with Thomas, there's a scene where the risen Lord, uh, he's talking with his disciples. Um, he breathes on them. Here, have the Holy Spirit. 
It says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And the idea is that they will go out as missionaries and bear fruit for the gospel. Um, and so what they do is they go fishing. <laughs> and some folks have said, like, what's going on there? Did they not take Jesus seriously? Did they not take the resurrection seriously? Um, were they avoiding this commission? And I'm just going to argue um, that's really harsh. I think they went fishing because they were hungry. And they were fishermen. <laughs> Um, like years ago, our family moved here to Athens, um, and we were coming here as missionaries to get, get a church planted, get a church started. Um, and one of the first things we did is we went to Kroger. And it wasn't because we were avoiding the task. No, we were hungry. That's how we got food. That's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're fishing because they're hungry. It's not odd that they went fishing. What's odd is that these professional, salty fishermen caught nothing and their night of fishing. Um, that Greek word is udin. Um, it's the same word back in John 15, when Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and so after this frustrating, fishless night of fishing, uh, this unknown person shows up on the shore, tells these professional fishermen how to do their job. Says, cast your net on the, on the right side of the boat. Like, well, we could have thought of that, seriously? <laughs> I actually think one of the miracles within this miracle is that they listen to the stranger on the shore. I mean, these are pros. They know how to fish. This is actually where they fish. They made their living on this sea. They know every nook and cranny. They know how the wind changes. They know what you can see on the shore, what the birds portend, and they listen to Jesus. Um, and it just occurs to me that if if what you are doing is not working, just as a principle, uh, maybe especially when you're doing the right thing that should be working and it's not working, um, it's time to go, Lord, am I doing this correctly? What would you have me do? And you could search the scriptures for that answer. You could search in prayer. You could ask godly counsel. What would you have me do? And then do that. Because that's what leads to fruitfulness, is they just obediently do exactly what Jesus says. And they cast their nets on the other side. It says it's the catch of their life. They can barely pull the net in. And it says the beloved disciple, the one Jesus loved, John, uh, oh, it's the Lord. Um, and, and Peter, it just, I mean, Peter's, you have to love Peter, right? I mean, it says he's kind of stripped for work, I think was the, the way we euphemistically put it. He had to put on his clothes and go to shore. Um, and I'm, I'm just thinking of those other accounts where there's an empty tomb, and John says, we ran to it, and I beat Peter because he's slow. <laughs> Peter's like, not this time, I'm going to get there. Jumps off the boat, hits the shore, and he finds Jesus grilling fish. Uh, says there's a charcoal fire, and I want to spend some time with this charcoal fire this morning. Because uh, I think that charcoal fire will actually tie up the loose end of Peter's denial. Um, and I'm going to tell you, you may know this, that there's a powerful link um, between smell and memory. Um, we had a, a neuroscientist at the first service, and she didn't correct me, so I think this is true. Um, that the part of the brain responsible for processing smells, the olfactory bulb, is right next to the hippocampus, which processes memory. And that's why smells and memories are so powerfully linked. 
I think about this in my own home. We, we have a, a china cabinet, um, this antique china cabinet that I don't like. Um, it's rickety. It doesn't go with anything. Um, I'm pretty sure, like, we put stuff in there that's valuable, and it could break at any moment. It is, it's, you know, you say antique, I say old. I don't know. It's just, come on. Uh, but this cabinet, for 60, 70 years, lived in my wife's grandmother's home. And then when she passed away, we inherited uh, this piece of furniture that doesn't work well. Um, and I, I was actually shocked when we moved from Texas five, six years ago. I was shocked it survived the move. It, it's that kind of a, a cabinet. And, and it's, it's wonderfully musty. I mean, when you open that cabinet, it smells like an antique. Um, and after a while, what I figured out is that when my wife opens that cabinet, it smells like her grandmother's house. And so when she opens that cabinet and, and I get this musty smell, I'm like, should we really put dishes in here? For her, it's as if her grandmother's right there because there's this link between smell and memory. And so I'm only allowed to talk bad about the cabinet from the pulpit. <laughs> I've learned that by now. Um, <laughs> now, Jesus knows that this is the way we work, right? And so I actually think that he is setting up a process for Peter with this charcoal fire. I think it's, it's no mistake that he decides, um, I'm going to cook these. And, and one, just a charcoal fire is unmistakable. Uh, many of you will go for a walk this afternoon, and someone in your neighborhood is probably going to be grilling, and you're going to smell it, and you're, you're going to know exactly what's happening. It's unmistakable. But in the Gospels, the charcoal fire is pretty rare. It actually appears twice. It appears here when Jesus is cooking these fish on a charcoal fire. And the other time is just a few chapters earlier in John 18. Let me read you what's going on. This is right after Jesus is arrested. And he's taken to the high priest's home. And it says that Peter goes and he stands outside the home. He finally goes in. And there's a servant girl who says, wait a minute. Aren't you also one of this man's disciples? And what does Peter say? I'm not. He'll actually say it forcefully three times. Verse 18 of chapter 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. That's the other instance of a charcoal fire. The setting, the smell, the tragedy of Peter's denial. I think this is intentional from Jesus. And so if you're Peter, just imagine, you're, you're on the boat, you figure out it's the Lord, you jump in, you hit the shore. At what point do you catch that whiff of the charcoal fire? And I imagine he just chokes on it. Because all of the shame all of the tragedy, all of the pain of that denial comes flooding back to Peter as he runs to Jesus, the one he denied. That's who he's approaching. The betrayal, the shame, uh, the tears. What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is actually beautifully, tenderly setting up this process of, of transformation and healing and restoration for Peter. Attending to every nuance and detail, even to have 
a charcoal fire. Um, and it's interesting, this is, this is home turf for Peter. He grew up on the shores of this sea. He made his living uh, fishing this sea. Uh, Peter actually walked on this sea. This is where he walked on water. Um, and Jesus, with that fire, goes, yeah, but let's talk about your lowest moment. What's Jesus going to do with that lowest moment where he chokes on all of his failure? Well, instead of discarding him, instead of choosing someone else, uh, Christ restores him. And I don't think we'd blame Jesus if he hadn't. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. I mean, this guy was your leader. You had picked him to lead. And when it got hard, he denied you three times. And we're just a couple days later. But Jesus wants to use him. He wants to heal him, transform him, restore him. Why? Because he loves him. There's actually some details that let us know that the Lord doesn't need any of us. He just delights to use us. Um, they had the biggest catch of their life. All this fish, Jesus is like, hey, that's fine. I've got my own fish right here. Oh, you want to bring some of yours? That's, that's great, you know? It's, it's like when you're in the garden with a toddler. <laughs> you say, hey, you come dig up this part. Um, you're including them lovingly. You delight to do that. Um, but despite his sins and his shortcomings, his betrayal, his denial, his temper, this is Peter. The Lord wants to love him and restore him. And it just makes me wonder, man, what are those moments like for us? Those charcoal fire moments of going, I didn't know I could go lower. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to pray about that. But the Lord can use it, can meet us even there and say, let's talk about that. We need to. We can't just pretend it didn't happen. But let's look at that and see if we can find healing and transformation and restoration turning back to rushing to Jesus. That's the way to do it. Um, turning back to the one who, who first called Peter on the beach, um, who loved him, who redeemed him. Turning to the one who, who died for his sin and is, is, is alive, has risen from the dead and wants to work in and through uh, Peter and wants to work in and through you and wants to work in and through me and in and through this church to catch fish and, and to bear fruit. I want to talk about this uh, this catch they have, because um, they haul in the, the catch of their lives, and don't miss that it's after a season of absolute no fish, right? The whole night they're fishing, they're professional fishermen. You would think they have fish. It is a bleak season right before their greatest catch. They listen to Jesus, they cast the nets, so they have 153 large fish. They, they actually think the net's going to break but it doesn't. It, it holds. And I'm just going to suggest to you that whenever we are talking about fish, we're not just talking about fish in the Gospels with Jesus. You remember when he called these fishermen, what did he tell them? You're going to become fishers of men. Um, evangelism, the, the catch of the Gospel, is always in play when we're talking about fishing. And there's a detail here that kind of gives it away. Um, did you wonder why we're told there's 153 fish? Um, I used to work at a really large church, and we, were, uh, we tracked things carefully, and we, we tracked things carefully here. Um, and I remember him talking to the ushers. Hey, this is why we do a count. Just like they counted here in the Gospels. They counted 153 fish. We've got to make sure to know who's there all the time. And again, there's, there's room for, for good record keeping. 
But there's something else happening here. And I, I think we don't automatically realize it, but um, in, the, in the ancient world, in the first century, if you ask how many kinds of fish are there, do you know what the answer would be? 153. That was uh, something that everyone in the ancient world would have been aware of. Certainly these fishermen knew. There's 153 kinds of fish in the sea. Interesting. St. Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate, uh, says that there are 153 kinds of fish. Again, this is common knowledge in the ancient world. Because, well, that, if this is the great catch of the gospel, there's 153 kinds of fish which were, well, they were all taken by the apostles. And, and not one remains uncaptured. Uh, the noble and the low, the rich and the poor, every class of humanity are being drawn out of the sea of this world for salvation. That's what the church fathers saw when they read this. This is the great work of the gospel. This is go and make disciples of every nation. Um, that's what it is, 153 kinds of fish, everything we can imagine in all of its wonderful diversity. Tribe, tongue, people, nation, ethnicity. Uh, Paul and Galatians, whether it's rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, you're all one in the Messiah in Christ Jesus. Um, and actually, I think that's interesting that when it tells us that this huge net was full of all this diversity and didn't break, um, it held together. In its unity, amidst the strain, um, the gospel can hold all this together and, and in beautiful harmony. And so I think that Jesus is trying to teach them with even those 153 fish before they're going to be sent out on mission. And they go out everywhere to all the known world. Um, that the gospel is for everybody. And this work of evangelism and, and formation and mutual care for one another uh, is for everyone. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And so he meets them on the beach. He heals them. He transforms them. He, he restores Peter and sends him out. Um, and, and interestingly, that's a little bit of what we do each week here in, in worship. You probably have seen it. If you track the logic of our liturgy, um, every week we come, and what do we do? We make confession. <laughs> um, every week we come, and we hear words of ab absolution. Hey, remember, in Jesus, you're forgiven. Remember, in Jesus, here's what he's done for you. We're, we're restored. Um, here they come, they share a meal with Jesus. Well, here we come, we're nourished by the word, nourished at this table. Um, and then we don't just hang out. Actually, the very final prayer, Lord, send us out to do the work you have given us to do. After they eat, they're sent out to do the work God has given them to do. Um, and there's certainly, there's individual callings we have, vocations in our lives, and there's a place to really focus on that and talk about it. But there's a call on the life of God's people gathered, the church. There's work that he gives us to do uh, together. And I think this is pretty instructive, because after this, what he'll tell Peter to do after they've caught fish, he says, feed sheep. That's the one-two punch of ministry. Catch fish, feed sheep. Not for just professionals, for all of God's church. Catch fish, feed sheep, bear fruit. And I think what keeps us from that so often is probably something like Peter went through. A low point, a failure, a sin, something hidden, something we can't get over, something we don't want to think about. 
And the Lord says, I'm here ready to uh, deal with that, heal you from that, embrace, forgive, restore, and recommission. Use you again. There's work that I have given you to do. Um, He doesn't need us for that work. He didn't need Peter for that work. Uh, But he delights to use us and even to grow us through doing uh, the work that he's given us to do, to go out and to, to bear fruit for the gospel. That wonderful announcement that, that Jesus is Lord, that, that's deep and, and it's rich. Um, I always love the summary from Tim Keller. He says, you're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. I think Peter was aware of his sinfulness and his flaws when he choked on that fire. He says, but you're more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Do you think Peter imagined ministry on the other side of that betrayal? Coming through that charcoal fire? No. And it's not just because of, you know, good wishes or, or, or well intentions. No, it's because of what Jesus has done. His finished work on the cross, his mighty resurrection through which all things are being made new, being brought back uh, into proper relationship, reconciled with our triune God, starting with us. And that's where our gospel work starts. It starts like Thomas, who brought his doubts and needed to have an encounter with the Lord. It starts like Peter, who had his sin, his failure, and needed an encounter with the Lord to be healed and transformed and recommissioned um, to receive God's Holy Spirit, to be sent out with with a mission. Um, And again, that's what we do here. Um, I'll I'll just tell you one one thing. We're about about done. Um, So have you ever wondered... Uh, why churches have pews like this? Um, and why churches love this kind of a structure? Doesn't this look like a boat? Uh, that's why this is generally called the nave. That's, that's in, in church term, it's, it's a nave. And the pews are intentionally envisioned like you would rowing a boat. Um, God's people have, have latched on to this idea. That even here, we're, we're a boat. We're, we're on this journey, and we come, and we're nourished by word and sacrament. We, we row hard together. We're conformed to the image of Jesus as we meet him in the scriptures at the table, encourage one another, pray for one another, but then we're sent out. It's not just for us. We're sent out, and we're sent out uh, on mission uh, to a culture that is skeptical and hurt, in need of the gospel faithfully embodied. They need to see people who, who walk and, you know, if, if smell's important, who smell like Jesus? Uh, the aroma of Christ, Paul says in one place. Um, they need folks who proclaim the gospel clearly. Um, that they're confident, here's what Christ has done for you and for me, and demonstrate it joyfully. Uh, not condemning, not angry, not frustrated, but joyful, peaceful. Uh, the kind of people being transformed Uh, by our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.